have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to James chapter 1 and pick up, pick up pretty much where Brother Payne left off last week, James chapter 1. And if you have something to take notes with, go ahead and get that out too. On your phone, handwritten notes, I take notes on my phone because I don't like to write anything and my handwriting's terrible, I wouldn't be able to read it anyway. So it's all on my phone, but whatever the case, if you're playing on your phone, I'm assuming you're taking notes and you're super interested and you're not texting or on Facebook or anything like that. Is that a deal? So last week, Pastor laid a foundation of talking about who James was. He was a half-brother of Jesus. And instead of starting his book talking about being the half-brother of Jesus or being the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he started by calling himself a servant, recognizing that I'm here to serve the will of God and serve the kingdom of God. And so when you read the book of James, at times we see some people call it the Proverbs of the New Testament, whereas wisdom and bits of wisdom being given to the church, but at other times he almost sounds like an Old Testament prophet going off on people about things. And it's a swing, but as you look, there's a thread of wisdom, faith, humility, and endurance that works its way through the whole book, that kind of over shows up over and over again. Some scholars believe that the book of James was actually a sermon or a collection of sermons put together, not necessarily a letter, not set up like a normal letter, that it was, it's a collection of sermons or sermon thoughts condensed down and put, compiled together. And so his book's a little different than all the rest of the books that are out there. Because of the way he's writing, and, and if it is a sermon, because he was a preacher, he doesn't necessarily go into the details that Paul would go into. You read, you read the book of Romans, and Paul says, the same, says something, says the same thing another way, says it another way, and by the time you get to the end, there's no question about what he's saying. Sometimes James was just kind of throwing an idea out there, hoping that you'll kind of dig into it, figure it out later. Because he's just preaching. He's hitting a bunch of points. So Pastor opened up walking through the first eight verses, which are talking about various trials that take place in our life. And he told us to embrace the trials and understand that God is using those trials to bring completeness or wholeness in our life. His focus of his letter is spiritual maturity. Everybody say spiritual maturity. Is a huge part of his letter. So he let everybody know that trials are a critical part of spiritual maturity. You cannot develop in the spiritual maturity without the trial. So pastor made it to verse 8, but I'm going to go back a few verses, kind of set up where we're going tonight. I'm going to try to get through verse 18. And I know it's only 13 verses, but there's so much here that we could spend a year on this. So James... Chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, and I'm going to read from the New King James Version for the most part tonight. says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In verse 5, he tells us, if you lack wisdom, pray for it, and God will give it. And this idea of asking for wisdom, seeking wisdom, sets the tone for the rest of the book. 
our trials that we go through that he talked about in the first few verses, the trials that we face are meant to produce spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity shows up through wisdom. Has anybody ever seen somebody who was lacking wisdom? Has anybody ever worked with somebody who was lacking wisdom? Have you ever found somebody who was a great person at heart, but they had no idea how to talk to people, no idea how to treat people? They meant well, but they had no wisdom. Well, that is what James is talking about. Everything else is, un- is based on understanding that wisdom and spiritual maturity are interconnected. Because what happens a lot of time, we look around at people we think are more spiritual mature, spiritually mature, and we say, well, I don't know how to get there. How did they get to that place? One thing, yeah, they probably prayed a lot. Yeah, that, that's one part of it. But another part is they, they grew in wisdom. They learned how to deal with themselves. They learned how to deal with their mouth. They learned how to deal with the way they treat people. They learned wisdom. And that's a huge part of spiritual maturity. So to kind of give a bird's eye view of the rest of the letter, our single greatest need in the time of trial is to have wisdom that's going to help us. Sometimes we don't need God to come down and just snatch our our boss by their head and pull them out of there that they're the problem. Sometimes what we need is wisdom. How do I handle it? So wisdom helps us understand the purpose of the trial, the source of the temptation, the nature of pure religion, what we'll get to probably next week, the importance of control over the tongue, the source of interpersonal strife, the importance of treating with dignity even the people we serve, and the manner of ministry to the suffering. It all is based on wisdom. So James says that if we want to understand the process that God is doing in us, And what he's trying to make us into, we've got to stop and pray, God, give me wisdom. Give me understanding. Help me understand what you're doing. You have to understand who James is talking to. So we look at our trials, and we got a hangnail. So we got a trial that's going with us all day. It's horrible. Or or we stub our toe, and that's, that's a trial, fiery trial from the adversary, straight from hell. But what the people James is talking to are the early Christians. These are the first church, as Pastor said last week, it's probably the first book written between 44 A.D. and 49 A.D., the first epistle written. And he's talking to these early Christians who are under persecution. They're facing jail. They're facing death. And not only are they facing persecution, these people are confused about what is happening. Because we have to understand that they don't really understand how the Messiah's kingdom is going to work. They understand Jesus was the Messiah. And they understand that Jesus is going to come back. But a lot of them are thinking, hey, it's about to happen. He left about 15 years ago. He's coming back any moment. And they don't understand the long term of how this kingdom's actually going to operate. They're waiting for Jesus to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and, and govern them and usher them into this golden age. And they're expecting that. And here they are, instead of that happening, they're being persecuted, they're being killed. They're being thrown in prison. So their trials don't make any sense at all. And so they're saying, all right, James is telling them, all right, I know these trials don't make sense. You need to pray for wisdom. You need to pray for understanding about what's happening. So once again, laying the foundation, Stephen had just died just a few years before. James, the apostle, the brother of John, had just been martyred within a couple years before this. They're under pressure by the Roman officials as well as these Jews who don't believe. 
And so they're in this state of extreme confusion. And James said, all right, don't pray that God will take the trial away. Pray for wisdom. He didn't say pray that God will take the, the persecution away. He said pray to understand what is happening. Pray to understand what God is doing in this season that you don't get. And that was the response. He wanted them to pray for understanding what God's plan was and what they need to do in response. And that's, a, that's the prayer we need to pray in the face of our trials. Yes, pray that God will take it away. But Paul had a thorn in his flesh, and he prayed three times, God, take this from me. And finally he realized, oh, God's not going to take it. I'm supposed to deal with this. This is part of my journey. This is part of me learning how to be a more mature Christian. And so sometimes we need to stop and say, God, give me wisdom to understand your plan and what I need to do in response. God, my boss is getting on my nerves. I pray that you would get rid of him. You didn't. So, all right, God, what do I need to do? What am I missing? What needs to be different? My kid's getting on my nerves. And I can't get rid of them. I have to keep them. So, God, what do I need to learn in this season? What are you trying to tell me? And that's the most powerful prayer that James said. Everything else I'm about to talk about, everything about practical Christianity, living for God, actually putting your walk with God into in action starts with pray for wisdom. Pray for understanding. It echoes Solomon's message on the importance of wisdom in Proverbs 4 and 7. He said, wisdom is the principal thing. It's the main thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thou getting, get understanding or the ability to put that wisdom into action. Get wisdom because wisdom helps everything else fall into place. If I can understand that what I'm going through is bigger than myself, then suddenly that patience that James had talked about earlier, that enduring patience, I can have patience to say, you know what, I know it hurts right now, but there's something going on. I have, I'm getting understanding. And this leads to verse 8. If you can put verse 8 back up there, it says the double-minded man is unstable. That double-minded literally means a mind and a mind, or of two minds. That I'm, I'm, that I'm, or another tr iteration of it is a face and a face. That I'm facing this way and I'm facing that way. So it says, he used that word again to talk about someone that's trying to live for God and live for themselves and sin. But here, he's really just talking about someone, do I believe that God's going to respond to my prayer? Because if I pray, God, give me wisdom, but I don't really believe it. That I'm praying, God, give me wisdom, but I'm really thinking I'm stuck. Or I'm, or I'm praying for wisdom, but I really mean, God, get rid of that trial. Then I'm going to be stuck in this place where I'm trying to figure out how to do this myself. I'm unstable. I'll never get a foundation. I'll never be able to stand strong in my trial if I'm constantly doubting if God's at work in this. I'll be double-minded and unstable. Hebrews 11 and 6 said, but without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If we don't believe that God's going to give us direction when we pray, then we can't please him, and we cannot find stability. If we're not careful, we'll only pray that God will take care of our needs. If we're not careful, we'll only pray, God, I have this problem, I need you to fix my problem. But that's not all what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer is supposed to be, God, work on me. God, help me. God, give me strength. Give me direction. If I can't trust that God is working in the midst of my trial, that he wants to give me direction, then I'm never going to be able to make it. I'm never going to be able to stand solid because I'll always be doubting if God really, does he really care about what's happening to me? 
We have to believe that God is with me. He's orchestrating my steps. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. That he's orchestrating my steps. And somehow, somewhere, he's going to give me wisdom to navigate what I'm dealing with right now. I'll say this. And I can speak for myself. I can't speak for anybody else. But I look at my life. Most of the time, God didn't take the trial away. Most of the time, I prayed, God, deal with this thing. And most of the time, God said, no, I'm trying to grow you. You need to learn from this. Most of, not some of the time. Most of the time, the answer was work on yourself. You be better. You be more spiritually mature, and you'll be able to get through this season. You'll make it through this, but you have to trust me and trust that I know what I'm doing and I'm guiding you. So we see that Peter had to navigate this. He was hot-headed by nature. We have anybody that's hot-headed? Don't point to your spouse. Shortly before the portrayal of Jesus, this took place in Luke 22. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I pray for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Peter, he, he really didn't under He knew something was going on, but he didn't understand what was about to happen. He didn't understand how heavy everything was. He didn't understand Jesus was about to die, that Jesus was about to be rose again. He didn't realize that. So Jesus said, you're about to go through a trial that you don't fully understand right now. So I'm praying that your faith can keep you until you really have wisdom to understand what's going on. I'm praying that your faith can hold strong. Peter didn't realize the death and resurrection were about to happen. He didn't realize it was necessary because he was lacking understanding. He was lacking wisdom. And it wasn't until afterwards after the trial was over, that he looked back and then he understood what Jesus was doing. Isn't that how trials normally work? We get to the end of it and we realize, oh, that's what that meant. That's what that was. That's what that was about. So before Peter, this, is this primary example, before he was, had wisdom and before he had understanding of what God was doing, he was unstable. He was hot-headed. He would get mad. He would overreact. But it was after he gained wisdom that when they came and confronted him, he stood strong. That he was willing to give his life for the gospel. It was before he had wisdom, he walked, he ran away and denied Jesus. But it was after he had understanding that he was able to make it and stand strong. The sifting or the trial produced a spiritual maturity in him. That even, that even though he messed up along the way, it produced something in him. Let me tell you, there's wisdom to gain even when you mess up. I don't know about you. Maybe your record's a little better than mine. I'm not batting a 1,000 on my trials. I'm not. I can look back at some things in my life that I didn't handle it right, that I made mistakes, that God put this opportunity in front of me, and I fumbled it because I didn't have wisdom. But there's still something to gain from your failure. Your failure, God can still teach you in your failure. It's not wasted. It's still a trial, and you still made it through. You still survived. It's all about embracing and trusting that even in my failure, God can take all that and work it for my good. Because he's God. He's sovereign. He can do what he wants. And so this idea of embracing wisdom and understanding leads us to verse 9. James 1 and 9 through 11 says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich let him glory in his humiliation. Because of the flower of the field, he passes away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat that it withers the grass. His flower falls and his beautiful appearance perishes so that the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. Now, at first glance, it seems like James is 
just going full ADD. That he's talking about trials, he's talking about patience, he's talking about this, and now just mid-sentence he stopped, now he's talking about rich folk and poor folk. And it's like, okay, what does that have to do with what you just said? He goes from talking about wisdom and understanding, this persecution, the rich and poor people. But when you look a little closer, there's some connections. First off, in James verse 2, it talks about trials of any kind. There, we all have different trials. There's not just one kind of trial that faces us. We all have different experiences. We all came from different backgrounds. We all have different proclivities. We all have different things that we struggle with. We've all had different experiences that have impressed on our life that we've had to deal with. Poor people may say that I wouldn't mind swapping problems with the rich guy. But the Bible's clear that there's struggles with the poor people and the rich people. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go into heaven. So maybe if our eternal goal, if our, if our eyes are really on heaven, maybe I don't want the rich guy's problems. Maybe it's better that I stay where I am. Maybe it's better that I don't become the richest person out there. So he's saying it's, there's spiritual dangers that come with wealth. Second thing, he's saying that both the rich and the poor are commanded to glory when their circumstances change. He said when the, when the poor guy gets rich all of a sudden, give glory to God. Look what the Lord has done. You see, it takes wisdom to keep, from to keep the changing of your fortunes into perspective. That if I suddenly become wealthy, it's easy to, for me to say, look what I did. Look, look, look how great I, look how smart I am, look how talented I, look at what I did to become, I, I, I'm rags to riches, look at me. It's easy to become prideful. It's easy to do that. Then suddenly, if you suddenly become poor, then it's easy to get bitter and depressed. James, he's stressing that fruit of humility and meekness. That I have to understand that everything in my life, the good, the bad, the seasons of plenty, the seasons of struggle, everything in my life is orchestrated by God. And i got to trust that He is my source no matter how much money I have in the bank account or whether I'm rich, whether I'm poor, whether everything's great or not, I trust that God is still my source. Not my abilities, not myself, not what I can do. It's all about God. I have to understand that whether God gives or takes away, He's still God. He's still sovereign. He still deserves my worship. He still deserves my life. I still need to live my life surrendered to Him in everything that I do. My actions still need to line up with His word, whether things are going great or whether things are going terrible. Because he's still God. Throughout the book, James references Job. Job was the original. He had everything. He was the richest man around. And in one day, he lost everything. Just like that, he loses all this stuff. And then his friends come along, and they start saying, well, it's your fault. I don't know what you did, but it's absolutely 100%, without a doubt, your fault. All you. Why don't you go ahead and tell me what you did? Because you did something. Called him prideful. Called him all kinds of things. Because it must be your fault. Because you were rich, now you're poor. But then Job stayed faithful and all of a sudden at the end he went from being poor with nothing to having twice as much as he had before. His season changed. But all through the book, through the whole trial when he lost everything, he was still faithful. And when he got everything back, he was still faithful. Because his trial didn't determine anything. In the midst of it all, he said, what can I learn from this? 
What can I gain from this, what I'm going through? So there's these references to Job throughout. And third, life is full of different experiences. We got to learn to rejoice regardless of where we find ourselves. You're going to have good seasons. If, you're in a, if you've been in a bad season, I promise at some point that things are going to turn and you're going to end up in a good season. At some point along the way, I don't know when, I don't know how, things are going to get better. If things are great, things are going to get worse. It's going to happen. It's part of the process. Life is full of different experiences. And I've got to learn that no matter what, as Paul says, and no matter what state I am to be content with what God has given me and what God has trusted me and understand that God is teaching me. That I have to see my situation not through worldly wisdom or worldly understanding, but through God's wisdom. And how is God looking at this situation? And it all points to one thing, spiritual maturity. Am I growing spiritually by my trials? Remember James, he's writing to the 12 tribes. He's writing primarily to Jews. We could take this and learn from it. But he's primarily writing to Christians who had grown up Jewish and had been listening to Pharisees teach their entire lives. A lot of what he talks about is from the same vein as the Sermon on the Mount where the Pharisees had ingrained these false teachings in their minds that they were trying to just weed out and get it out of their mind. The Pharisees taught that if you're blessed, that means you're, you're living right. That if you're blessed and you're rich, you're doing the right thing. But if you're poor, that means it must be your fault. You're doing something wrong. You're living in sin. That it's you. And here's James telling them, Jesus and then James later, that it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, this world is not your home. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if everything's great or everything's not. This is not your reward. This is temporary. This is all going away one day. Your reward is not this. It's not the size of your house. It's the size of the mansion over there. It's not the size of the, 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 how expensive your car is. That's not the reward. Your reward is in heaven, not here on earth. So you can, be, you can live for God and be rich, or you can live for God and be poor. You can live in sin and be rich, or you can live in sin and be poor. You can't take anything in this world to your heavenly home. So in the meantime, he's saying, all this, you need to have faith and trust me that I'm in the middle of it. And always keep your eye on heaven. Always keep your eye on where you're going. There's something greater waiting for you than you have right now. And so once again, he's, setting, he's always setting up. It's always setting up the next thing. He's about to redefine what being blessed actually looks like in a similar vein to what Jesus did. In James 1, verse 12, it said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved or tried, he will receive the crown of life, which, is, which the Lord has promised to those who believe, who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed, that when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He didn't say blessed is a rich man. He, say, he didn't say blessed is the man whose life is comfortable. He, did, he said blessed is the man who endures temptation. Blessed is the man who endures the trial. Blessed is the man who go, went through the storm but survived. Blessed is the man who went through it but made it. That's the blessed man, not the rich man. Not the man who has all the material blessings, the man who made it. Has anybody made it? Anybody can say, you know what, I might not have everything that I wanted, but I made it. 
It might not look the way I wanted it to. I might have been a harder road than I thought it was going to be, but I made it. Can I tell you, blessed is the man who made it, who survived the storm. And that word approved or tried, depending on which version you have, literally, literally means pass the test. So blessed is the man that passed the test because he's going to receive the crown of life. The crown they're referring to is not necessarily a crown of royalty, a gold crown or anything, but it's that victor's crown that you've seen, like the, the roving from plants that they would give at the end of a race to, to the to victor of the race. Paul referenced races often. If we endure the trials, if we pass the test that God has laid in front of us, then we're going to have that victor's crown placed on our head. And I'm not in competition with anyone because I'm the only one running my race. So if I have to limp my way across, if I have to barely make it, if I have bumps and bruises all along the way, as long as I make it, I'm going to have the crown on my head. I'm going to have the victor's crown because I'm not in a race against you. If you get there faster than me, if you're more spiritual than me on the way, that's awesome. I'm happy for you. If it's easier for you, that's great. But my goal is just to make it. And all along the way, I'm going to grow in the best way that I can. So a lot of what James has wrote has been preachy up to this point. But then he slows down and kind of gets a little more theological to kind of set some things in order with the way they think. He says, we shouldn't say, I am tempted by God. We shouldn't say, God is the source of my temptation. God is never the source of your temptation. God is holy. He's perfectly holy. And he's never going to try to entice you to do something that's going to lead you to unholiness, unrighteousness. He's holy. He's not going to draw you into something or push you to do something unholy. In verses 2 and verse 12, it's a noun, just talking about trials, experiences that we go through, just general trials. But then verse 13 and 14, it's a verb. It's talking about that sin, that trial, that, that temptation is within me. That flesh is within me. That temptation, no matter what I do, is always pulling me away, trying to seduce me to go back to my old self. And some people may say, well, that's a semantics argument. You're saying God didn't tempt you, but God tried you. And somehow that's different. What is? God allows trials to come our way because he's trying to, we have the opportunity to choose him. He allows trials so that I can have the opportunity to see where I'm lacking wisdom. It gives me the chance to see, oh, I'm failing in this area. It gives me the chance to see, oh, I need to be better at this. I need to watch my temper a little better at home. I need to watch the way I talk to people. It, it gives me the opportunity to see where I need to grow at. If we never face trials, we're, we're never going to have the opportunity to grow and develop in maturity. And some may say that some may say that God may want us to choose Him, but He's creating the opportunity for us to choose Him. It's not accurate. We have to understand God is His first and foremost goal is to save us. But then the next step is to grow us in our character and our maturity. He's, he's intimately interested in your growth. He doesn't want you just to come sit on a pew and not grow. That's not what God's intention was. God's intention is for you to grow spiritually, to you, for you to look back a year from now and you be further along in your walk with God than you were at the start of last year. That's God's intention. So he's, he's, he's developing character. First and foremost, he is our father. The church collectively is his bride, but individually our relationship is him. He is our father. He's a father to us. Any father knows that sometimes kids have to learn and grow 
if they're going to learn and grow, we have to let them go through something. We have to give them this opportunity to, to encounter this problem and solve this problem. And we're watching. We're there. We didn't walk away. We're there. But we give them this thing that they have two choices they can choose. They can try to do it themselves, figure it out themselves, or they can ask for help from the Father. That's the two options when we go through trials. That's what God has given us. But then there's the third option where the kid gets distracted, walks away, and puts their hands on the stove. That's not what God's intention was. That's not what the Father's intention is. It, that, that's not what the trial was about. That's what happened when the kid gets distracted. They walk away from the Father and they choose their own misguided ambitions. That's where we end up in sin. When we reject the Father's two choices there and choose, well, I'm going to choose my way. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to follow my desires. So we have to understand that every trial we have three choices. We can choose to draw closer to God, grow in maturity. We can choose to just keep fighting and try to figure it out ourselves and do it on our own way. But, but stay faithful to God, but just try to figure it out on our own, which is not what God intends. He wants us to choose Him. But we can also choose to withdraw from God and use my fleshly sinful desires as the outlet. The third choice, the, the temptation, God didn't, God didn't cause me to be tempted to do that. That was me. I chose the third choice. I chose the other option that God didn't lay out there. I went my way. I did my thing. Our sinful nature, is gonna, it's going to be alone for the ride till you make it to glory. You're going to be made of flesh till you cross over. Every single one of us. It don't matter how spiritual you think you are, you're still flesh. If I poke you in the eye, it's still going to hurt. It don't, it don't matter who you are. Like You are still going to be made of flesh until we cross over. We're never going to stop being human. It's always God's intention that we, that we make the decision between drawing closer or fighting within ourselves. That third option, verse 14, if you could put that back up, that's what it's talking about when we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. That word for drawn away is a Greek word that's used for game, that's being lured or baited away, being lured into a trap. When I'm enticed or lured away by my own desires, not, not by the devil, by my fleshly desires. We blame the devil for a lot of stuff that's us, that's our flesh, that stuff God, that, that it's our flesh, it's, what, it's our sinful nature. The temptation is not, and, and I want to make this clear, temptation is not that we have feelings and emotions that pull us in a certain direction. That's, that's being human. No matter what happens to so the day you die, you're going to have emotions that pull you in different directions. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're probably going to get mad. Probably going to happen. You didn't, get, you didn't sin by getting mad. Those emotions are there. God put them there. They're there for a reason. That's just being made of flesh. It's when I allow myself to be lured away and I begin to entertain those fleshly desires. When I begin to entertain those thoughts, those emotions, and I begin to act on, that's when I'm getting lured away. And God didn't do that. I did that. I chose that path. This leads to verse 15, if you could put that back up, which tells us that when fleshly, fleshly cravings are conceived or acted upon, that gives birth to sin. Understand that it's not a sin to struggle with your flesh. You're going to struggle with your flesh. You're, you're going to struggle. It's not a sin to feel things tug you in a different direction. That, that's the battle we fight every day. 
It's when that thought is entertained. It's when that thought is acted on. It's when I, instead of casting it down, as 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's when I don't take my thoughts captive. It's when I entertain the thoughts is when I fall into sin. When I go in that direction, that's when I fall into sin. And the Spirit is there to help us bring those thoughts into captivity. That's what the Holy Spirit is there to give us strength to make the right choice. To give us strength to choose God instead of my flesh. To trust God instead of what I want. But if we choose to continue in sin, continually allowing these thoughts to be acted on, verse 15 says that it brings forth death or it gives birth to spiritual destruction when I follow after myself. This is the test of our faith. True faith is shown when I have two options in front of me and I choose Christ, not myself. True faith says, yes, I'm willing to put what I want aside because I trust that God is so good and so faithful that even if it's not what I want right now, I'm going to choose him because I trust him. He's my father. I know he has what's best for me. I know that he wants me to grow. I know he wants what's best for me. So even though I want to choose this, I want to choose my flesh, I want to do it myself, I trust God so much that I'm going to put my faith in it. I'm going to go against my desires because I trust him. I believe him. I know he's right. And he ends this verse, this section in verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So he had given this warning not to be lured away by their own lusts. And he reaffirms it one more time. He's saying, don't be confused about where the source of temptation is. Blaming God for leading you astray. God didn't do that. It's you. And then for good measure, this, I love this. Throughout the book, you'll see, he'll just kind of every now and then randomly say, my beloved brethren. And in other words, what he's really saying is, I just want you to know I'm saying this because I love you. He's literally just reassuring them, hey, I know I'm being tough right now. I love you. I'm saying this because I love you. So he just kind of says, my beloved brethren, every now and then to let them know, hey, I'm not mad at you. I, I, I love you. Kind of like a, a southern mom. I'm just doing this because I love you. As the belt's coming off. Hurts me more than it hurts you. That's what James is saying right here. And he calls him my beloved brother and reminds him, I mean well with what I'm saying. And this leads into verse 17. James, he spent the last few verses telling him, God's not the source of your temptation. God is not the source of what's wrong. Our flesh is a source of temptation. When we act on it, it becomes sin. And when sin becomes our way of life, it leads to destruction. Then he says this in verse 17. He says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Sin and death, they come from within us. When I choose myself, that's where sin and death come from. But every good and perfect gift, that comes from above. That comes from God. Every good thing. That wisdom that we talked about at the beginning of the chapter, that wisdom is one of those good and perfect gifts that come down from above that God is wanting to pour out on us. He wants to give us wisdom. He's looking for opportunities to give us wisdom so we can grow in spiritual maturity. Endurance and patience, those are some of those good gifts that he's wanting to give us. Or Humility is another one of those good gifts that come down from heaven. And when it says comes down it's talking about it's continually coming down from heaven. So God is continually handing down good gifts to his children. Each and every day, all day, every day, God is continually handing down 
strength. He's continually handing down patience. He's continually handing down endurance. He's continually handing down good gifts to me. So that means at any time that I want to grow in my walk with God, it's available. At any moment when I'm ready to grow, he's, he's, he's handing down good gifts. They're coming down continually from heaven. It's just a matter of me deciding it's time. And they don't come from within us. It's not me. I'm not the source of my wisdom. I'm not the source of patience. I'm not the source. I promise I'm not the source of patience. I'm not the source. The source is coming down, and it's kind of a, a beautiful illustration. They come from the Father of lights. And it's, it's an ancient Jewish expression as God is a creator. And he's saying it's coming down from the one who made the stars, the sun, the moon, all the lights that we see that shine each and every day, that show up constantly, that are always there, that are always showing up, that are always giving direction, always giving us clarity. The sun, the moon, the stars, that give us direction on how to go and how to navigate. The Father who made all those things is continually handing down good gifts to me. He's continually showing up. And then it says that, but with God, there's no variation or shadow of turning. Because when we look at the sun, it's, it's constantly moving across our sky. Or we look at the moon, it's a different phase every night. It's moving to a different place. The stars move in the sky depending on the time of the year. But he says, God, he doesn't, he doesn't, there is no shadow of changing. There is no cloud that comes in front of him. He's always where he said he would be. He's always what he said he would be. He's always faithful no matter what's going on. Even the stars may move, but God doesn't change. Even though, the, even though every trial is going on in my life, everything's moving around me. Even the things I trust and know that they're given to me from God are moving. God never moves. And he's always handing down the good gifts. He's giving to me. And while I mention a few of those gifts, the greatest of the good and perfect gifts is the gift of the new birth. The spirit of the, the, spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit living inside of us. In verse 18, if you could put it back up, says, Of his own will brought us forth by the word of truth. Another way of saying this, in fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of God. Or in tickfall terms, he could say, Having made his decision, he gave us birth by the word of God. Having made his decision, he chose me. The ground of the supernatural birth is God chose me. It was his will, his desire that I would be saved. He looked at me. Sinful me, with all the mistakes that I've made, he looked at me when he was on the cross and said, I'm choosing him. I want him. In spite of what I've done, in spite of the trials, he knew I was going to fail. In spite of the times he knew I was going to take matters in my own hand, in spite of the time when he knew I was going to choose myself, he said, I want that one. I choose him. It's always been the fulfillment, having made his decision, he gives me a chance. Following the analogy of birth, we know that birth is the decision of the parent, not the child. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your, name, your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And we read that and we may pause say, He chose me. No, I chose him. I, rem I can take you the place. I remember exactly where I was at the campgrounds right there, kids camp, 2001. Get my, get my years mixed up getting old. 2001, I can take you to the place. I was right by an outlet. I can take you to the place I was. I remember choosing him there. He says, no, I chose you. It's like, but, I, but I know you chose me. 1 John 4, 19 clarifies it. says, we love him because he first loved us. If he did not love me first, there's nothing I could have ever done 
We're saved by grace, and we'll get into that more in the next couple of weeks. I'm saved by the grace of God, not because I'm so awesome, not because I'm so wonderful. There, it doesn't matter what I do. If you take the grace of God out of the equation, I can't be saved. It's by the grace of God. He loved me first, and so now I had the opportunity to choose him. We can choose to love him because he loves us first. He opened the door so that I could love him, so I could choose him. And I want to be clear, and it may come up later. I'm not talking about predestination. We won't go off on a big discussion about the problem of Calvinism. But God doesn't have a selective few that are going to be saved no matter what they do. It's not how it works. That's not love. Love requires that I have the freedom to choose whether I want God or not. I, it's not love if I, if I don't have a choice in the matter. It's not love if, I'm, if I can't walk away. That was the, the whole point of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had a choice to, to follow God's command or not. God is reaching for everyone that will listen. 2 Peter 3 and 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 12 and 32 says, And I, if I'm lifted up in the earth, talking about Jesus, will draw all people unto myself. Not some people. Everybody will be drawn if we lift him up. God's call goes to everyone. And it's for all to come to repentance. Not some. Not selected few. It's, it's up to me on my individual self to respond to that call. It's my responsibility. God wants me. He's always wanted me. He always will want me. But I have to want him in response. I have to want him. I have to choose God. I have to choose in my trial, am I going to take care of it myself? Am I going to turn to my own desires? Or am I going to say, Father, I need help. I don't know what to do. I'm confused. Give me wisdom. I don't understand what I'm going through right now. I need you to show me something. You guys stand on our feet. Jesse can come. We're not going to give some big altar call, but just the way it kind of ends here, just a powerful thought. James said in verse 18 that it's so that we can be a kind of first fruits of his creatures or creation. He's drawing on the Old Testament regulation of, of tithe, where tithing comes from, the first fruits. Abel offered of his first, fruit, first fruits. The tithe was supposed to come from the first fruits, the, the first thing that you have. But in this context, we're the first fruit. Not something we have to offer. We, me, we are the first fruit. This church he's talking to, they're the first fruits. Giving God that initial crop was an act of faith that he will fulfill his promise for, of a full harvest to come. The first fruits were given with the belief that more is going to be coming. I give because I believe you're going to bring more. I trust you with this little bit because I trust you more is coming. I give you this because I know there's more to this. Three ideas find their focus in this offering. One, out of all that belong to the Lord, because everything belongs to Him, this first fruit was especially His. It especially belonged to Him. The rest is going to be remain to use for ordinary purposes. The first fruits, they had to be the best, and they were set apart as holy, set apart for a purpose. They were holy. And the offering of the first fruits was an annual reminder that God's going to keep his promise to the people and that one day we'll be established. One day we're going to have a homeland and we're going to be provided for. And it's easy to see why Jane can speak of the church as the Lord's first fruits. We belong to the Lord. My life is not my own. I belong to the Lord. I am the first fruits. I don't belong to myself. I belong to the Lord. I am his to do what he will with it. I'm set apart for his use. 
I'm holy for his use, for his purpose, for what he is doing in my life. I'm holy, set apart for him. And then I demonstrate to the world, I am proof to the world that God's going to keep his promise. Just like the first fruits, that first tithing was proof that if I give this, God's going to come through. I trust him to come through. I'm proof, I'm living proof that God is faithful. I'm living proof that God is going to show up, that God is going to... God's going to establish a church. I am proof that God will save anybody. I'm proof that anybody can be reached and anybody can be delivered. I'm proof to the world. I'm the first fruits. That word creature comes from a root word. It's used in other literature to refer to the founding of a town, building it, or colonizing a town. We were created. We were formed as a first fruit of all of God's creation to be a vessel, to be a city, to be a place where God would dwell. In our sinful state, I can't house the glory of God. I'm sinful. I've turned against God. I've chosen myself. I've done the wrong thing. But that new birth comes. That second birth comes. And I'm not the old man I used to be. Now I'm a, I'm a city that can be filled. Now I'm a house that can be filled, that was built and created to be filled with the Spirit, to be a city on the hill for all to see, to be a light. My life is proof that the grace of God is bigger than the curse of sin. Each and every one of us, the church, we connect with the, people, with the church in the book of James because just like them, we're proof that God's grace is bigger than sin. You're proof that God's grace can reach past the rankest sin that you've ever committed. You're proof that the blood is greater than your bondage. You're proof to the world that God is faithful. You're proof to the world that there's hope, that there's a there's a heaven coming. The God of all the universe, the Father of lights, He saw fit to save me, redeem me, and make me the first fruits of His creation. We're, we're, we're the initial evidence that one day Christ is coming back. And Christ is going to reign in the world. We're the proof. We're the first fruits that are here for everybody to see that one day Christ is coming back for a church. That Christ is coming back and there's going to be no more sin. And there's going to be no more tears. And there's going to be no more pain. We're proof that there's a better day coming for the world. I can be rich. I can be poor on this earth. But it really doesn't matter. I'm proof that heaven is real. I'm proof that God is going to save His people. That there's hope. I'm proof that one of these days that eastern sky is going to split. And I don't know when it's going to happen. But one of these days Christ is coming back for a church. And we're going to be part of it. And we're going to see the greatness of God on display. So beautiful to think. That God will look out and choose me to be His first fruit. Then he would choose me to be proof that there's a greater harvest coming, but I'll let you be the first fruit. I'll let you be part of it. And until then, we're the, we're the promise that the, a better day's coming. Each and every day of your life, you're not just going to your job tomorrow. You're an ambassador to a kingdom that's coming. You're an ambassador of light of a kingdom that's coming and say, you know what, I'm the first fruits of God. He picked me. And let me show you what God can do in me. And if God can pick me, the, the first harvest, there's going to be a greater latter harvest. And you can be part of that. There's going to be another harvest. Because God didn't give up on me. God didn't walk away from me. God didn't give up. And there's another harvest coming. In the last days, He's going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. 
And our sons and our daughters are going to prophesy. The young men, they're going to see visions. And the old men, they're going to dream dreams. And upon his servants and the handmaids, he's going to pour out of his spirit. And they're going to prophesy. The spirit of God is going to break out in the earth. But we get to be the first fruits. And we get to be part right in the middle of it when it happens. We have the opportunity to be frontline viewers of what God does in the earth. Such an honor. But I've just got to endure. I've got to remember my trial is bigger than myself. I've got to remember that God has given me wisdom. God has given me wisdom to make it through this trial because one of these days, I'm going to see his kingdom in full view. I'm going to see the kingdom of heaven. Let me close our eyes for a moment. Can we just thank God for allowing us to be part of his kingdom? Thank you, Jesus, that I get to be part of the first fruits. Well, God, I don't deserve it. I was a sinner. I walked away from I chose the wrong thing time and time again. Time and time again, I was drawn away and enticed after my own lusts and my own desires. But you didn't give up on me. You didn't walk away from me. You didn't, you didn't give up on me, but you reached time and time again and say, just get back up. I got you. Just grow a little bit. You, you, you got this. You're going to make it. And if you'll remain to the end and you'll be faithful, I get to see the kingdom of heaven. I get to see Jesus Christ in all his glory. There's nothing sweeter than that. And I dare say that if something is sweeter than that, maybe we need to reevaluate our focus. Because it's not about my trials. It's not about the house I live in. It's not about my treasures. It's about the kingdom of heaven. I'm not trying to prolong it, but can we just wait, just wait on the Lord for a moment? There's a sweet presence of the Lord in here right now. Maybe we need just to take a minute to be thankful. Take a minute to evaluate. Say, God, am, am I giving you my all? God, God am, I, am I learning what you would have me learn? Am I, am I focused on you and your kingdom and your desires for my life? Or am I being drawn away by my own desires? Because, God, I want to be the first fruit. God, I want to be in your kingdom. God, I want to live for you. I want to walk with you. God is so good. God is so good. But there's a greater harvest coming. Can, can I tell you your family's coming? I know it's teaching night, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to prophesy for a moment. Can, can I tell you your family's coming? Can I tell you there's another harvest coming? That if you'll be the first fruits, there's a later harvest that's coming. And God's going to pour out His Spirit on your job. And God's going to pour out His Spirit on your community. And God's going to pour out His Spirit on your family. And the people that you never thought were coming are going to come in because this harvest is so great. And this harvest is so big. The thing you never thought was possible. Somebody accept that. Your family is coming because there's another harvest. There's another harvest coming. That if God reached for you, He's reaching for somebody else. That if God could get you, He can find somebody else. There's nobody beyond His reach. Anybody say, can anybody believe that? If God saved you, He can save anybody. That if God saved me, a self-righteous little hypocrite that grew up in church and thought I had it all figured out. If God could choose me, He could choose anybody. We're going down.